Welcome to Success Stories brought to you by SNS Activewear. I'm your host, Marshall Atkinson, and this is the podcast that focuses on what's working so you can have success too. We all talk about alignment with our customers. One shop in particular has taken that to another level with its focus on sustainability, company culture, and branding, and that is Dom Rosacci's shop, Superior Inc. in Denver, Colorado. On today's Success Stories podcast, we'll speak with Dom and learn about his shop and his focus on doing things correctly for the outdoor brands and customers they serve. You're not going to want to miss this one. So, Dom, welcome to the Success Stories podcast. Thank you, Marshall. I'm excited to be here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what you've been doing because you know all into that sustainability thing. And so it's really good to see a like-minded person in the industry. So this I think it's going to be a fun chat today. I can't wait. Yeah, it's been a fun journey and excited to kind of dig into that that sector a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead and get started with just really your origin stories. So tell the folks here about how you started Superior Inc. and take us back to how and why you started and uh, talk about all that stuff. So I grew up kind of an outdoor enthusiast, specifically snowboarding. That was my real passion, you know, through high school, kept me out of trouble. And so I started a snowboard clothing company called Neovolt. This was back in 2004, I believe, is when I first started that brand. And we would do, would purchase through like Custom Inc. You know, they were even around back then in the early days. And I would sell to snowboard shops on consignment. And as that kind of progressed over the years, I started researching how do you actually physically screen print yourself? You know, this was before a lot of the resources that we have available now. And I kept landing on a screen printer. I didn't even know what it looked like. I had no idea what to expect, but I worked at my grandfather's meat market for about a year to save up enough money to get my first caps press. Do you remember those presses? They were orange back in the day. Yep. So we finally saved up enough to get that bad boy. And I didn't know you needed exposure units, screens, tape, all that fun stuff. So I actually hit up my buddy, John McGee. You know, he's with Union and Aviant now. He had a skate shop down in Castle Rock. And I knew he had done screen printing back in the day in California. So he made me a parts list to go down to Home Depot and hit up Midwest to start you know, getting all the supplies that I needed to be successful. And really the reason I started from the snowboard industry is doing it at a competitive level and getting injured all the time. I really wanted to stay connected to that industry without breaking bones, (laughs) you know? So I started a snowboard brand, like I said, you know, servicing snowboard shops, skate shops, and, you know, then kind of mastered the craft of producing my own stuff and was kind of self-taught. It was a long journey to figure that out. Now, fast forward, I'd say three, four years later, you know, it was a real struggle. We didn't have e-commerce back then. And so I started contracting some jobs for like a couple tattoo shops. I was still in high school, man. So I was trying to, you know, I had to move out of my basement into a two-car garage. The rent was 525 bucks. And that's a big number when you're a high school kid. So I was kind of balancing school and running this business and it became more lucrative at the time to print for other shops. You know, I was making more money that way. And so that was kind of the catalyst in starting a screen print company. I did both the brand and was screen printing for other people 
for about a two-year period. And it kind of became a conflict of interest because you're a company that produces your stuff and is producing for other people. So in 2000, I want to say 2012, I actually founded Superior Inc. And that's where I dissolved Neovolt and focused on screen printing full-time. So that was just with the manual. So when did you like become the real deal? I have my own shop. I got an auto. I got, you know, have employees. When did all that happen? It took a while, man. You know, I moved from that spot. It was off of Santa Fe down Southern Colorado, Santa Fe and Titan Road. I moved out of that shop and got further down into Inglewood, which is a little bit closer to the city. And it was probably like a three or four year period of printing on manual presses, kind of a slow drip of adding employees until finally we got to the point where, you know, we we got a gauntlet. 1996 gauntlet was our first auto, you know. Back then, dude, it was hard. I mean, we're talking close to 15 years ago when I first started the screen printing company. So it was tough as a young dude back then, not having a lot of mentors, not having online resources. I mean, it's so there's so much value now in learning the craft before you start it. I was just thick in it, you know, trying to figure it out. And yeah. How hard could it be? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd say like the point of entry for screen printing is the bar is pretty low. It's not like a wild investment necessarily until you start getting into automated equipment. But hopefully, you know, by the time you're ready for that, you have a business going, you have some demand and it's an easy turnover. So then fast forward, we moved to Denver. We got a shop off of LaPan. Um, that's where we got our second auto. You know, back then, big oversized prints were a hot ticket item. So we got a Challenger 3. And that was fun. So we were running two autos, but both of them were janky. You know, they were the stuff that I didn't finance. I bought it with cash and I didn't have a whole lot of money in my pocket. So I just got the, you know, kind of bottom of the barrel. Were they used? Yeah, heavily. You know, I think each one probably had a couple million impressions on them and they were falling apart. And so it looked like after every revolution, it would do like a little epileptic fit until like it's hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Don't have spray tech or anything on the arms because that thing would be falling off. And then, so really what catapulted us into like a legitimate manufacturing operation is we got a deal. I won't name names. It's in the snowboard industry, but we did all their prototyping and sampling, you know, even 10, 12 years ago, that was kind of the norm. You would prototype, do samples, have salesman samples for them to go out to all the retail stores and sell. But that's a big ask. You know, if if you're sampling a whole collection, 20 to 30 designs, maybe a dozen or two dozen pieces per you know, we had like a hundred screens, did full package relabeling, and we were just not set up for that at the time. So, anyways, we got this contract, did the samples. We're like, we've made it. You know, let's go ahead and buy a new, brand new press, move into a building to accommodate this. And so we did that. And two months after we made the move and financed the new equipment, the company actually said, "Oh, we're going to move production to California. The rates are better." And uh, you know, sorry. I mean, that was one of the scariest things ever because you're now financially tied and married and you make all these sacrifices and then your primary client drops you. That's a learning lesson, you know? Yeah. Did you have an agreement or anything or just no all? agreement? It was a handshake, man. It was just, you know, at that point in time, I was probably 20 years old, just a young dude, kind of greenhorn, not really knowing consequences and just trial by fire type situation. And it was devastating, man. I was like, I don't know what, how we're going to do this, but with the death of one customer comes a rebirth of more. And we 
we're able to kind of dig out of that and have a few big relationships replace them. But, you know, that's just one of those early lessons that you learn. Like you can't really go off the bro deals. You know, you really have to, if you're going to make sacrifice and financial pivots, you really have to have something concrete or just spread your eggs. You know what I'm saying? Not put everything in one basket and expect and pray that that's going to be the end all solution. Well, I'm a big believer in not having more than 20% of your business tied up into one customer. Yeah. Because it'll kill you. (laughs) Something happens with them. As the end, you know, we're just the t-shirt people. We don't really know what's going on with them day to day. And all of a sudden they go out of business or whatever, then what are you doing, right? Especially if you're not getting all your money up front and they owe you a lot of money and now they're out of business, it's a mess because the t-shirt guys, the last people they're paying. (laughs) Yeah, man. And I would say that fast forward, your biggest relationships, a lot of them understand that and they actually don't want to give you more than, you know, 20% of their business because if a screen print shop closes down, then they're in a tight spot. So it's kind of like that 20% rule it favors both parties. And I'd like to say that most big companies that we contract with get that. But then we've also had a scenario that just happened recently where it was one of our biggest accounts. They're on net 90 terms. Come time to pay the invoice, they file for chapter 11 a month before and we got burned. And this was like a company that was warehoused or or their headquarters was in the Empire State Building, a massive, massive company that you just don't expect you would never well, in a million years guess that would happen, you know? Well, just because they've got that blue blood status or whatever doesn't mean something's not going to go wrong. Yeah. You know? All right. So let's talk about where you are now. You've been around the industry. So how many employees you have, presses, all that kind of stuff. What's it look like for you now? Well, we have 30 employees between the two locations. We have three automatics, an oval, a P18, and a P10. We're heavy into finishings. So we work with a lot of retail brands. So we have fully automated folding, bagging. We do tagging. That's our screen printing location. Our second location, we acquired an embroidery company in 2020, right before the pandemic. So we run about 54 heads of embroidery at our second location. Mm -hmm. So combined between the two, we have 30 people, really solid team. I've been at this long enough now to kind of be able to get through the ups and downs and yeah, it takes a lot to build good culture and have good people that you're proud of. And I think we're kind of at that. I would actually say the sweet spot is closer to 15 people. I think that's when we're at our best in terms of culture. With this many people, you're walking that fine line. You know, you really have to have corporate policy, which is tough for screen print dudes. You know, like we're self taught, yeah. a lot of creative yeah. people, and it's hard to cross that bridge, but you just have to have the structure in place with that many people. This is going to be a good segue into my next question, because I know as you've grown, you read a particular book and that I think really helped you orchestrate kind of your mindset around growth and scaling and infrastructure and that. And that was the book Traction. We talked about that earlier in our pre-call, and that really kind of helped you set up your team culture for your shop. So why don't you talk about that for a minute? and kind of explain to everyone what a difference that made for you. Yeah. So 2016 is when I picked up that book and I'll be the first to admit just the way that my mind works. I am not one that retains information when I get it. So I will have to say that there was a couple key things in traction that 
kind of shifted and made a huge pivot for us as a business. But one of the main things is just identifying your core values. The word quality is so saturated and it's just people talk about it to their blue in the face. But really for me, you know, I wanted to build something, a, a pillar of the business that had more purpose. I had two huge takeaways from that. One is top down how your company's built. You know, you have visionary and you have integrator. I've never been an integrator. I've always had ideas, but actually implementing them are super hard. So when I identified that, I really understood that the power of delegation, the power of having the right butts in the right seats. So that was a huge takeaway. Right. Another one was the core values. Like, why do you exist? You know, this was like finding your why before that philosophy kind of like broke into business. Now it's a staple. Why do you start your company? But sustainability to me was one of the things that was the low hanging fruit. It's like, how can I make the biggest impact with the limited knowledge that I know? You know, I don't know politics. I don't know a lot of things. Stay within my lane and change what I can control. Yeah, that's great. And it's going to come no shock to you that I'm an integrator. (laughs) Yeah. Getting things done, right? Yes. you know, as a former chief operating officer, that's my job is to let's get it done and let's get it done quicker and cheaper, right? Yeah. So how can we do that? And sustainability actually became the coat hook that I hung everything on. Because as you know, sustainability is all about doing things with less, less materials, less effort, less waste. And way back when, you know, I was an art director. What do I know about production? And then I got promoted into running production just because I kept asking questions that nobody had the answers for. And I would like find the answer and the, hey, let's do that. So that's kind of how it went. And so I found sustainability and that gave me an inroad into like Lean Six Sigma and all the other manufacturing kind of ideas, right? But it was sustainability that really helped with that. So I was all in real early. And that kind of came out of a trip I went to the SGIA show one year when they had it in Atlanta. And they were just starting the Sustainable Green Printing Partnership certification. And I got the company I worked for at the time to be the first apparel decorator to get certified by it. And when I left that company, I went to another one and I got that company certified. So I've gotten two companies certified for sustainability. And I think you'll agree with this. Once you adopt that mindset, it helps you uh, look at your costs, look at your workflow, look at what you do with just a kind of different outlook. And it actually, even though initially it might, costs you some money. It actually makes you money. It makes you more profitable. It also is an offensive sales weapon because if you were to judge two companies and one is certified sustainable and the other isn't, most customers are going to go with somebody who's doing things better. And you actually start winning a lot of jobs because you prove you're the real deal, right? And wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that there's no real right or wrong way in terms of the barrier of entry to get involved with sustainability. I think the most important thing is one, does it matter to you? You know, cause like you said, there's initial cost restraints into doing the right thing, but I think long-term, yeah, there's some cost savings and there's just sustainability is kind of a vague word. It's like, are you sustainable as a business? Meaning you're going to last long-term and are you sustainable from an environmental perspective? And 
And so I think what I've always said is we don't say we're pioneers of sustainability by any means. I'm just winging it, you know, and have since day one. I think the important thing is that I do want to have a positive impact on, you know, with an industry that has kind of some negative consequences to the environmental journey. But, you know, I think the important thing is, do you want to make a difference? And then it's just asking yourself, how can I get involved? Step one, two, three, you know, the low hanging fruit, what are some easy ways to get into it? And then ultimately long-term when you really root into it, there's definitely some cost barriers and that's going to come from a monetary side, like, you know, offsets for your carbon emissions and investing in certain equipment that's going to help minimize certain things. I think getting back to traction a little bit, you know, from that book, right? One of the things that really helped me when I read it was the whole idea of kind of mapping things out as to where we want to go and getting everybody on board with the same ideas and then breaking that up into the rocks idea where you can only do maybe up to maybe three this better if it's just one or two for the next six weeks. And that's what we're going to focus on. And then we're going to cycle through these. And that's your main focus is getting these big ideas handled. And the little stuff is going to work itself through, right? So talk about how you've used that idea from traction to kind of move your company into a different direction. Are you like using the book like that and building a culture? Not necessarily. Like I said, you know, just the way that my mind works, I kind of dive into things and then I retain only the things that actually stick with me. So I haven't had this book by my side, you know, as, as kind of a weapon through the whole process. I think 2016, I really invested into it. And then whatever stuck with me that I retained from that book, I applied to the business. I think the the core, like the pillars of sustainability for, for Superior Inc., was one, like understanding the way that things are manufactured and the supply chain and the garments that you're produ- you know, you're printing on. But then also we went through this certification with the city of Denver that was really helpful for us just identifying our, you know, our output and our impact from utility side, you know, from a power side. I've talked about this before, but it is pretty easy to get discouraged because to a certain point, to be the most sustainable shop, you shouldn't really be producing anything if you really want to be sustainable. And obviously that's not realistic. So we had to kind of clean up our process as much as we possibly could in terms of a production standpoint. And then the big thing for us is just educating customers on you know, the data of going with a, say a conventional cotton shirt versus an organic cotton shirt you know, educating them on the difference between virgin polyester and recycled polyester. And there's pros and cons to a lot, like any topic you can find a con to it, you know, like microplastics, for example. So it's really easy to get discouraged because sustainability is a discipline, you know, it's something that you have to stick to and you always learn more as you go and you pivot. But to answer your question, I think traction to me was just that light bulb that was like, oh, okay, I understand. Like you need to do these in phases and you're not going to just change everything overnight. You know, it's a slow drip and it's something that as long as you stick to it and you're constantly willing to educate yourself and improve and get your team on board, then I think you're going to make a pretty good impact, you know, long term. So you sound like you're more of a visionary guy. So who is your integrator there? Well, our integrator, I wish I could say I've had the same integrator for the past 10 years, but 
unfortunately it comes and goes, you know, we have an integrator on the production side. Hunter's been with me for 10 years and he's really that process guy now. Now he's not analytical, you know, Marshall, like I know that from my experience with you, the way that you think about things is very analytical numbers. I wish we had that type of thinking in here, but being the business that we are, it's more implementation from, I guess, numbers factor into it, but it's not like we have a CFO that's helping with processes back there. You know, Hunter does a tremendous job on the production side. And then up front with me, I've always kind of had a right-hand person that's like, I could bring things to the table. This is what I think we need to do. And then we have people run with it. From an actual accounting perspective, we do have a fractional CFO that's helped us tremendously and helped me understand how to even look at financials. I'm that typical business owner, fly by the seat of your pants, you know, nose down, going off gut and intuition. Uh, it wasn't until probably year seven or eight that we actually had some financial people come in and say, hey, Dom, this is how you read a P&L. Like, this is important stuff, man. You can't just go by your gut. Like what you hear so far? Be sure to subscribe so you can get the latest from success stories. And now, here's Devin Freet with the SNS Spotlight. Learning more about trends, eye-catching decoration techniques, and unique apparel styles is the key to adding more value to your clients' orders. On our YouTube series, Decoration Miss, we're teaching you all that and more. By taking on challenging placements, products, and misconceptions about decorating, we'll show you that those hurdles are just opportunities to deliver something elevated and unique to your clients. So, if you're having trouble on the press or looking for some decoration inspiration, check out Decoration Miss on the SNS Activewear YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. Let's talk a little more in depth about sustainability. So, the certification that you earned in Denver, did you have an auditor come out? And got any other certifications that you've earned? Like talk about that process a little bit and about how that you've used that certification for your advantage in sales. Well, we did have an auditor through that process kind of guiding us. It was a lengthy deal, you know, it took us about six months to do the initial kind of checkpoint analysis and make changes. And then probably another six months to a year to actually have the revenue to invest in it. You know, like on an old building like this, for example, the T12s, you know, how much energy are the old school T12s burning and replacing them to LED? I mean, it was unrealistic for us at the time to just invest, you know, 15, $20,000 in, in replacing all those. So it was like, what do we have the financial capacity to change right now? And then, you know, longer term, how can we kind of change that? So hold on. Do you know that there's grant money for that? Did you look into doing that? Yeah. So we did the rebates through Excel. Would have been maybe the $20,000 range was significantly less through that rebate program. So yes, we did explore that. But these are all things that you're learning as you go. You know what I mean? Like, a couple years after that certification, we brought uh, Cam in as a sustainability director, you know, so that we could actually have somebody that's day in, day out studying how we can be better and what we can do and what programs are out there. So I haven't gone through extensive certifications through, you know, I know you have some too that you've you've touched on and mentioned before. I would say 
for our sustainable journey, that was the linchpin is working with the city on how to identify things and then kind of self implementation after that point of just learning and exploring like what our impact is and how we can improve it the most possible. So I think for you and other shop owners that are listening, one thing you might want to look at is your region, your city, your state. If there is a manufacturing association, like you're in Colorado, there's probably a Colorado manufacturing association. You as a apparel decorator, you're a manufacturer. You know, you might think, well, I don't build car doors. You know, I'm not a manufacturer, but we do manufacturing. We take something, we change it somehow and out pops a different product. That's manufacturing. So you have every right to belong to the Manufacturing Association. And a lot of these associations are affiliated with state government, with the federal government. And this is how you can apply and get a lot of money to change your processes, get an energy audit or get a guy to come in and recommend a different way to do your HVAC or different lighting or whatever. I was always looking into that. And there's all types of really great grant money out there. And usually right now at the beginning of the year, a little bit is when you should be applying for that because, you know, by like August or September, you know, a lot of that money is already gone from these programs, but it's like, these are the people you need to make and make really good friends with. And I got an $80,000 sustainability grant from the city of Milwaukee to buy a Cornette Avalanche DTG printer. And that was from the city of Milwaukee. And I used their own engineers to test the difference between screen printing and digital as far as energy usage. I applied and got the grant using their own engineers and math. And that was a really nice check. (laughs) I'm curious, Marshall, what was the difference in data of energy consumption between the two? I don't remember. This was quite a while ago, but it was really looking at all the different processes because when we're screen printing, we're making screens and there's a lot of energy that's made into using screens and reclaiming screens because we were 300 screens a day shop, right? So we had a lot going on through that. And so they would just hook up. They have these little meters that you can hook up to anything that uses electricity and you can measure how much energy is being used, right? And so we took all that data, made a spreadsheet, and then we measured the use for DTG and it was like a fractional part of it. And I mentioned that association because I kept going to these city events And I would see the sustainability director there and I kept going, hey, buddy, where's my money? Hey, where's my money? You know, kind of a thing. And my final kicker was because I knew the mayor was running for re-election. I said, hey, can you imagine the TV crew coming out to our shop to film that the mayor was able to get a sustainability grant for this t-shirt shop. That's going to play really well on TV. And about two weeks later, we got the money. Oh, that's awesome. You just got to go and you got to stick out your hand. You got to bug the crap out of people and just meet them. Just like anything, you got to sell it, right? So, but the key is to find out where where the treasure is, right? And there's all these little grants and all these little things. And 
they can just come out and help you with workflow and employee training and all that stuff. There's tons of stuff like that out there. You just got to apply for it. So, yeah. And I think that's one thing too, is that that is the kind of the scary thing for a business owner, whether you're, you know, whether you have, you know, 10 autos or two autos or, or just a manual shop, I think it's not necessarily the cost that's, that's the scary part with sustainability. It's the time, you know, whether it's you as the business owner, that's searching all these grant opportunities and just ways that you can kind of get involved with these index programs or hiring a specific employee that that's their sole job is to look into how to improve. You know, I think it's more of a time resource than it is a cost resource. I mean, there's a little bit of both, but it certainly, certainly can be a full-time job, you know? Right. Well, I wasn't full-time doing that. This was, you know, I'd work on it here and there. And I think if you read Two Second Lean by Paul Akers, right, that's a really good book. If you're interested in starting, even if you don't ever get certified, just cleaning up your act and doing things better and reducing time, reducing waste, reducing steps, all that is sustainable. Your quality, you know, not making any errors is always sustainable. Just looking at the product and the consumables you're using. Yeah. uh, All that stuff can really help. And, you know, so it's just what are you doing and really opening your eyes. And I think for a lot of shops out there, they tend to think, well, we've always done it this way, and this is the only way we're going to do it, which is why they never look at a different emulsion or a different ink or a different process. Or, you know, they're using the same old press they've had for 20 years and not realizing that maybe a new one could reduce the energy being used or the amount of prints they're doing a day or, you know, just being more effective. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just really asking why and open your eyes to the possibilities. So I think it's great that you've gone to those links and you're still on the path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's not easy, but I think it's also getting your team on board. You know, it's like explaining why you're doing it. Yeah. You know, making sure that there's not a whole lot of resistance within the organization because that makes it really difficult too. If you don't have people that are open to change, that could be a barrier too. Well, you don't want to be, there's only one guy near the sustainability police telling people to turn the light off or recycle that can because that doesn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. All right. So, hey, let's end the show here and let's talk about the future, right? So where do you think this industry is going? And really, what are you most excited about there in your corner of the world? I'm really intrigued by AI and automation and technology. You know, we're at this really pivotal moment where that's starting to kind of trickle into every single industry, you know, whether people kind of comfort themselves into believing it or not. But yeah, this chat GPX is pretty wild. I think there's a lot of innovation happening in our industry that historically it hasn't. I feel like we've been a little bit lagged behind in terms of innovation. But, you know, I'm excited to see as these equipment manufacturers and technology companies continue to improve, like where that brings automation and streamlining. I mean, you know, the digital squeegee and hybrid printing is obviously on on the horizon. And, you know, we're screen printers. Like we've always been resistant to DTG because I feel like we're all scared that it's going to take the craft out, which it certainly can. Personally, I've recognized it. I see it out there. I think there's a lot of increase in on-demand versus like volume. And we're just kind of taking a back seat for a minute just to see what happens with our industry. And I've been a big proponent of not pivoting until I feel like it's the right time. 
You know, we just invested in that oval with the intention of having a hybrid printer. I'm not quite ready to pull the trigger on that, but I think as the technology gets better, certainly something that we're looking to explore, you know, we're not closed-minded to the idea, but I don't want to be version A, B, or C. I want to be version F. You know, once all the bugs are worked out, we want a plug and play solution. We don't want to be fighting R&D on some new technology. Well, I think what's really interesting is you're exactly right, AI, right? And I read this article the other day, and they were talking about the impact that photography had on the art scene. Because remember, at one point, there was no such thing as a camera. And so the whole article was about all the artists at the time were throwing up their hands going, we'll never need to paint that landscape or that bowl of fruit again, because you can just take a picture of it. And so here we are 200 years later, or however many years it was, right? And we're still painting. We're still taking photos. And we now we could take photos of that bowl of fruit or that landscape with our phone, right? Which 30 years ago, you'd never imagined taking a picture with our phone. Are you crazy? You know? So I think the chat or the AI art that you can make, where this is going to go is there's going to be people who can use that and model it and interpret it for what they want. And it's going to be just another tool in the toolbox, you know? So, you know, I write a lot. Is it going to replace me? It could, but would it replace my thoughts or how I think about things? You know, probably not, right? Just like you can use the tool to create some fantastic art, but that doesn't mean that that is from a particular person. It's going to be very interesting. I think a lot of like the clip art type services are going to be really instantly out of business because if we can have 34 different ways of doing a beaver mascot for some sort of high school and instantly you've got artwork and your client just picks the one they want to use and you're done. I think that's going to be a real interesting kind of way that things might morph into things. Will it be ready to print? Will it be ready to embroider? I don't know, right? Where is it going to go? I don't think anybody can predict. I think it's really early. That's kind of interesting. As far as the DTG goes, think about, you know, DTG's been around for quite a while. It hasn't replaced screen printing. But what it has done is made uh, it real easy to do print-on-demand stores, which, of course, is more sustainable than screen printing, because if you're only decorating the shirt as it's being ordered, there's no waste that is more sustainable. And I think what's being DTGs really being replaced with DTF, that's what the real interest is right now, because DTG is really about printing on cotton and DTF is, you know, a transfer can go on really anything, right? And so that's going to be kind of an interesting kind of thing as that plays out and that market grows a little bit. I know lots of shops who really heavily invested in DTF right now, and they've gotten rid of all their screen printing equipment, and they're just going to town with that and making lots of money. And it's hard for screen printers to look at that and think, well, it's not screen printing. I'm not interested in that. And my response to that is it's the label that you look at yourself with. So if, when you introduce yourself, how do you introduce yourself? Do you say, hi, I'm Don. I'm a screen printer. 
or do you say, hey, I'm Dom, I'm a business person, I'm an entrepreneur, what label are you giving yourself, I think really determines how you kind of view what decoration method might suit you best. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. It's not necessarily scary because any savvy business owner will know when it's time to evolve, you know, but having seen exactly the offset world, you know, 30 years ago, offset was the staple. I mean, you couldn't even touch the speed. You couldn't touch the low cost. And then now it's very, very rare to find an offset printer and it's kind of relevant to screen printing. So I think a lot of us in the back of our minds are asking like, man, when the technology is fast enough and more cost effective, will it get to the point of replacing screen printing or is it going to be a juxtaposition of both, you know? But I would have to go back to the photograph analogy that you made. I mean, it is interesting to see, you know, how art was even 10, 15 years ago, how art was created by using photographs and like the very rudimentary elements of Photoshop. And now, man, art is a dime a dozen. Like in 2003, if you had really cool art, you're probably going to be fairly successful in selling a streetwear brand. Now it's kind of reverted from having cool artwork to like having good messaging and having something that fe people can feel good about. And, you know, because art is just, or cool graphics on t-shirts are, are not necessarily the forefront of the selling point like they used to be. Now it's you kind of have to take a more holistic approach and have, you know, the I feel like the brands that are the most successful have that brand loyalty. Like I used to feel with wearing snowboard clothing. If I wore a Volcom shirt, I was part of this community and I felt like the textiles on my back brought me into this like certain demographic that I was proud of. And I feel like we're kind of reverting back to that in regards to clothing and textiles. And that's where sustainability is cool too, you know, is if you're wearing a bamboo shirt and you really care about not being an over consumer, it's cool to talk about like this bamboo, this is bamboo or this is organic cotton, you know, that's that brand loyalty brings you into a kind of a culture. But yeah, it's weird, dude. It's There's a lot of speculation with the AI world and things are moving incredibly fast. So it's hard to really, for anybody to predict you know, what the three next three years, five years and 10 years are going to look like, but we're along for the ride. And I think any smart business owner just, you know, educates themselves, see what the industry is doing and, and adjust where needed. I don't, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a scary thing. Well, here's, you know, just listening to you talk. I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that we have to be part of our customers community, right? Instead of selling them things, we have to be listening to what they're interested in, right? Yeah. So can we create products that they're they're asking for or they really will desire rather than trying to sell them stuff? Yeah. Right. And I think that where we get in trouble sometimes is we make things and we try to sell it to people and convince them it's the thing to do rather than we're making things that somebody already is wanting. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And that's been the traditional model of screen printing is like without just blabbing it out to somebody like, oh, produce more and more volume. I mean, the pricing speaks for itself. So now it's more of taking this holistic approach and learning and discovering what the needs are of your customer. And if they're not in a position to produce volume because they don't have the demand yet, then you can nurture that conversation into, okay, then this doesn't make sense for you. Here's solution B, which is DTF or or hybrid or DTG. I mean, there's a model for every type of business. So I think 
it's advantageous for us as business owners to learn, like you said, what the customer's needs are and and adapt a model specific to what's going to help them. Well, cool. So what's next for you guys? What are you guys doing this year? Any big things? We are, we're cruising on autopilot. Things are good this year. We uh, started a fulfillment company, which I'm pretty excited about. So that's kind of where a lot of my focus is going this year is is fulfilling, you know, orders for clients. That's a big need for them. So we'll see how that goes. And other than that, we're we're gonna have some fun with this oval. We're gonna continue to to invest in in the resources and tools that we need to be more and more successful with water based. We're in a very dry climate here, so we are kind of trying to push the envelope there. And hopefully, that oval helps us be more successful with that venture. Well, great. Well, that's so awesome. So. Thank you so much, Dom, for sharing your story of success with us today. What is the best way to contact you if someone wants to learn more about what you do or how you can help them? Email is the best way, Dom at superiorinkprinting.com. You can follow us on Instagram, just Superior Inc. Facebook, we got YouTube channel for educational content. You know, you can call Superior Inc shoot us an email. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today. It was a blast. You got it, Marshall. I appreciate you and I appreciate your knowledge and everything you do for our industry, man. Thank you. Well, that's our show today. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the latest success stories episodes. Have any suggestions for future guests or topics? Send them my way at marshall and marshallatkinson.com and we'll see you next time.